We continue our series today that we have very simply called Christian, uh, looking at some of the kind of essentials of what it means to be a Christian, the basics of Christianity. And today, we've got a biggie. We're thinking about heaven and hell and eternity, and we're going to get it all sorted in 20 minutes. Brilliant. Uh, to kick us off, I love films. Why do you talk with the person nearby? What's your favorite film and why? You've only got 10 seconds, so don't go into a huge amount. Favorite film and why? I love films. I love all sorts of different types of films, but one of the f my favorite types of films are the ones where there is a big twist at the end that you do not see coming. It frustrates me when there's a twist coming at the end and you do see it coming, but those films where you don't see it coming. I was Googling, apparently the, the top film that everyone says is the one with the biggest twist that they never saw coming was The Sixth Sense. Uh, a fascinating film. Anyway, uh, what if though, what if life is like that? Where the big reveal changes everything and changes how we suddenly see how everything happened preceding the big reveal. Today, as we look at the whole subject of heaven and hell, we're going to find out that Belinda Carlisle was right, sort of. And I'm going to be telling you to get the hell out of here, so we'll see where that goes. Just as we jump into this, I want to recommend a book for all of you. Uh, if this is a subject that you'd love to grapple with on your own, the book is on the screen. It's called Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. Well worth reading. Found it really, really helpful. Because this subject about eternity and heaven and hell, for many of us, fits into the too difficult category. We park the conversation because we know it's important, but we, for another day, it's too tricky. We're worried that just in case we really read into it, we might find bits in the Bible that we don't like. Or we want to ignore them because they kind of don't fit into our framework. Or we're so busy with this stuff of life and, frankly, trying to pay the bills and trying to keep the job down that those sort of big things, well, they're for another day, aren't they? And also, aren't so many problems in this world caused by people who are fixated on eternity? Think of some terrorism, climate change denial, and all those sort of things. So we ignore it. We park it over here for another day. Until, of course, we can't ignore it. And then it goes from being too difficult kind of conversation to being one that actually is too important not to think about. When health issues come crushing into our lives that we never saw coming. Where chronic disability means that our daily life looks so different compared to many others. Where a loved one walks away from their childhood faith and you wonder what might that mean. Where parents concerned for their children and you're wondering, are they going to follow the faith that I've tried to instill in them? Well, for some of us, frankly, just old age. And we begin to wonder, oh boy, what's next? <laughs> and in a world like ours of huge upheaval that we're going through right now, and frankly, have been going through for all our lives, in which we have war in Europe, a pandemic has floored the planet, the poorest still suffering and the gap's getting bigger, 
Once again, questions about heaven, hell, eternity keep on reappearing. And I want to suggest as we get into this that I'm convinced that what the Bible has to say about eternity is part of the greatest hope of Christianity in a society in which, frankly, the answers that are on offer are so lacking. Because we live in a world, don't we, that when you're going through challenges, the message is simply, be strong. You can beat it. Come on. And of course, we understand why that message is helpful. Adopting that sort of fighting posture can help G us on. But what have you got when you, frankly, don't have the strength? When the cancer results aren't what you hoped they would be. And if the message is simply just be strong, you've now not only got the fear, you've got the crushing guilt and shame that maybe you weren't quite strong enough, so it's somehow your fault. Language can be so brutal, can't it? We talk of losing our battle with cancer. We talk of having a miscarriage. We talk of losing a loved one. The emphasis on what we have done. And so not only do we have the devastating grief, we carry somehow shame because we're told we should have been stronger. What we need, friends, is somebody to come alongside us and say, I'm strong. I'll fight for you. Let me carry you, because I've got this. As Pierre said, God's got me. God's got us. And friends, might I suggest that is the hope that Christianity offers. Psalm 49, one of the earliest references to eternity in the Bible, says these words. The, the, the psalmist is looking around people who are wealthy and is effectively saying, what does your money do for you in the face of death? What do you got? And we read these words, verse 13. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. They're like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd, but the upright will prevail over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. In other words, the money that you've built up at the end of the day won't help. <laughs> and then the psalmist says this. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Oh. So all that society has to offer us, the things we want to live for, have got nothing in front face of death and taxes. And yet, somehow, there is hope. We all die, but maybe God can do something about it. What's going on? Well, I want to suggest very, very briefly that there's three important things that the Bible says about heaven, hell, and eternity that are really important for us. And to help us, we're going to return to the 1980s. Yay. <laughs> Who remembers Belinda Carlisle? Keep your hands up if you had a picture of her on your wall. <laughs> we have friends staying with us, and we had a jury talking about it last night, and he said, I had a picture of her on my wall. And I said... If you weren't married, you might still have a picture of your wall. 
This is what she said. Ooh, baby, don't you know what that's worth? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. They say in heaven love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. It was almost like the original, wasn't it? I want to suggest that Belinda was right. Sort of. If you ask most people what's heaven, you'd kind of get answers like, well, isn't it sort of in the sky, maybe clouds, God with a beard on the clouds, harps, angels, sorts of things. And then what's hell? Well, that's the other bit down below. Bad people go there, there's fire and stuff. And earth is where we live now until we go to one of those places. Kind of that's the concept of heaven and hell. But the Bible's description between the relationship between heaven and hell is heaven and hell and earth is very different from that. Look at the very opening words of the Bible, Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very first words. Heaven's not just some future place. And there's a relationship between earth and heaven. Now, we haven't got time to go into all that these words mean and their reflection on the sky and all that sort of stuff. But clearly in the Bible, there's both a physical dimension and a spiritual reality to all this. And then in Genesis 3, a couple of chapters later, we read these words. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Pause there for a moment. There is a relationship between heaven and earth. God is in the middle of the earth. The heavens and the earth are united. God's amongst them. And yet, something's happened. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. So there was a relationship, heaven and earth united, that's then fractured, so that then the relationship is somehow severed. God and humanity were united, now there's shame and fear, and all sorts of other stuff enters the story, because when we turn away from the one who gave life, we're turning away from life itself, which leads to all sorts of problems, frail bodies, broken planet, fractured relationships, deep internal wounds, let alone our own bodies. And the rest of the Bible is the story about bridging that gap back to get heaven and earth back together again. And so we get to Jesus. And what does Jesus pray? His disciples ask him to teach us to pray. This is what he says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want them back together again. We don't want this death. We don't want these frail bodies. We don't want this wrongdoing that's done to us and that we do to others. We want free from all that stuff. Your will now on earth as it is in heaven. And you see then in the life of Jesus, little glimpses of that happening. People are healed. People like Lazarus raised from the dead. Amazing. Miracles take place. And then something even more incredible happens in the biblical story. We read in Paul's letter to the Colossians, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood 
shed on the cross. Jesus reconciling heaven and earth, fractured by our sin, back together because of the cross. Which is why Pierre longs for God to heal now. But knows also that whether or not he does, the resurrected life is available now. Because the end of the Bible, you remember at the beginning, the people are kicked out of the garden. And at the end, we read these astonishing words, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he'll dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things now gone. And so we long for a day where heaven and earth are back together again fully. And hell, the hell on earth that we experience is gone. Do you notice the direction? It's not us going up to heaven. Heaven stepping in to earth. A new heaven and a new earth where our frail bodies, the stuff we get so wrong, gone. If you like, let me show this with pictures. I think many ideas of heaven and hell are like this one on the screen. We've got us on earth, and when our time on earth is done, we kind of go up or down. Heaven or hell? Might I suggest the Bible picture is different? We introduced hell on earth when we turned away from the one who gives life. And we see that reflected all across the planet in so many ways. Separating earth and heaven. And the hell on earth that we experience. But God cares too much to leave it like that. So God steps into the world to get the hell out of here. (laughs) Jesus stepped in once and for all. And giving us the glimpse of what that kingdom will one day look like as people are healed and death is overcome. And one day we'll see that in all its fullness. So we see glimpses now of healing and hope. And restored relationships, but one day in all its fullness. So that's the Bible story. Heaven and earth together and getting the hell out of here. Because we long for that day, if we're honest, where the hell on earth some of us experience is gone. Don't we wish that was the case now? I love this quote from the book that I recommended. God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth. For our world to flourish, there are some harmful powers that must be kept at bay. I used to work for a Christian development agency called Tear Fund. And one of the most harrowing stories I heard was when one of the, uh, the team from the head office in London went to some of Tear Fund's work in Thailand, working with victims of sex trafficking. 
And here he was, this guy, middle-aged white guy, went across visiting some of the work there. And he came back and told the story. If he met, he was introduced to a seven-year-old girl. And as the seven-year-old girl approached him, she began to undress. Because the only time she'd ever met a white Westerner, that's what she did. Friends, there is a hell on earth for people right now. And we know that to be true. We long for that not to be the case. The UN estimate is there's two million children trapped in sex trafficking in our world. And of course, our task as followers of Jesus is to do all we can to try and bring some of that heaven on earth now to shatter that stuff. But the problem we face is that those harmful powers are not just out there. They're in here. In the words of a modern-day prophet, Taylor Swift, (laughs) did you hear my covert narcissism that I disguise as altruism? One of the most famous bits of the Bible is Luke chapter 15. A story where Jesus talks about a father and two sons. It's called the prodigal son for many people. And what's so important and helpful for us in this is that it frames this discussion about where hell on earth really is. If you don't know the story, you've got a younger son that basically says to his dad, I want my inheritance now. Dad, I wish you were dead. And the father gives him his inheritance. And he goes off on a bender, wastes it all, and eventually realizes, boy, I've blown it. So then returns to his father. Meanwhile, the older brother has been faithfully slogging away in the household and is now really miffed at the younger son returning because he's welcomed with loving open arms. And we read these words. Luke chapter 15, verse 12. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. I want for me what you can give me. Look at the older brother's response to the younger one coming back. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. You never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat. Do you see the problem? The root problem is the same for both of them. Give me stuff. What I should have. About me. I don't love you, Father. I want what I can get out of you. The good stuff. The younger son's just honest about it. And so the story ends with this hanging cliffhanger. With the younger son fully in the party because he knows he needs that relationship. Whereas the younger one thinks he deserves it. The tragedy of the biblical perspective about heaven and hell is the hell that we see out there is just often an extreme version of what we see in here. This was brought home to me recently as I was reading about wildfires. Do you know the biggest wildfire in history was in 2003, they reckon, in Siberia. And the wildfire that took place in Siberia in 2003 was the same size as the whole of the United Kingdom. And they think 70% of it was started by humans. Cigarette butt here, a barbecue over there, some deforestation here. 
Now, those people dropping the cigarette butt or starting the barbecue didn't think that what I do was the same as the wildfire that it causes. But if you're going to fix the problem, what do you have to do? You have to stop the original sparks. <laughs> or imagine a tree. You've got the branches, which are like the big sin, like the sex trafficking, the bad stuff. But of course, they're only a reflection of the root, which is the lust, the power, the greed, the domination that if we're honest with ourselves, we see in our own hearts. We might not go there, but we see it lived out in a million ways every single day in our lives. And that's the problem. To get the hell out of here, to truly flourish, involves some hard truths for us too. And this is why the Christian hope is so good as we come towards a close. Because Jesus changes absolutely everything. The message is not do good and you never know, you might get to heaven or if you're unlucky, you'll get to hell. Instead, we see something crucial. And that's why as this Christian series that we've been running, uh, we've had the cross as the kind of logo for it. This is the game changer, friends. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. What he's simply saying is, if Jesus didn't die on the cross and didn't rise from the dead, friends, all of this is a sham. We've got nothing. But that's why there's an empty cross. He goes on. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And not only that, he's the first fruits. You know, when you go and you've been growing some fruit and you see that first little apple. And now you know there's more. And he rose from the dead so that we, those who cling on to him, then guaranteed that inheritance where he shattered the grave. Which is why so often, you know, you see old-fashioned churches and they have those gargoyles, those like really freaky gargoyles in the masonry work. Do you know why they do that? Part of the reason was because they're not allowed in the church. And it was almost taunting. And that's why the original Christians invented Halloween as a way of saying, come on then, evil powers, what have you got? Woo, you've got nothing. Because Jesus rose from the grave. Almost like the World Cup begins today. Almost like we can say, come on, you're not winning anymore. I went to a football match the other day, and you know when somebody really misses and the crowd go, ah! It's almost like Christians can do that now. Death, what have you got? Come on. Because Jesus is alive, the first fruits. And that's why Pierre can pray for healing now. But as Steve said, life Abundant life and resurrected life. Because of Jesus, friends, we have nothing to fear if we cling on to him. And all he simply says to us is, let me carry you. I've got this. And so if you're here this morning, if you're joining us online, and you've got stuff in your world where you're scared about the future, or there's somebody in your world that you're terrified, there's the health results, Jesus can carry you through, friends. All we simply say, need to say is, Jesus, carry me. Because I've got nothing. I'm not strong enough. You are the only hope. 
the first fruits for all of us.